Well, let's take our Bibles and turn this morning to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15. Reading at verse 1, John, who's been given the, the vision, says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the ages. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We began our journey up the mountain of the book of Revelation towards the summit, which you'll find in the very last page of the book, where we're all headed, actually, we're all headed, as well as where we're all headed notionally now as we're studying this particular book. And one of the things we've learned about the structure of the book, I think, can be illustrated from an experience I had a couple of times, at least, uh, long before I knew you and was living in Scotland and then in London, I used to go every couple of years to Colorado Springs to a conference that was held in Village 7 Presbyterian Church there. And, of course, if you've been to Colorado Springs, you know that Pikes Peak, which is 14,600 feet or something, towers over uh, that, that town. And you can get to the top of Pikes Peak by climbing. Our son Andrew came with me one time and he, he got pretty far up until the rain started. Uh, you can go up other ways. But the first time that I went up, I was persuaded to go with a couple. He was a minister of Moody Church in Chicago and his wife was driving and took us up by car. Now, it was a bit scary. Uh, You you circle around the mountain on dirt tracks with a solid wall on one side and a sheer drop on the other. It's very scary. And you go round and round and round, and you you can't see anything coming. They've got to come down that way as well. So you... And the thing that was burned into my mind was we were in a two-door car, and I was in the back seat. I'm trying to calculate, how do I get out of this? I also learned a thing about myself. that I like to be in control when it comes to the driving. So anyway, but if you can imagine the scene going up this mountain, you, as you go up, of course, 
you're moving round and taking the, the winding path until you get to the summit. As, as you turn back round to the same point, you're seeing the same point from another level, higher up. You don't look down, of course, because that's scary. But you look over at the scenery and, and you see it from a different angle, the perspective. And that is precisely the layout of the book of Revelation. We keep coming back to familiar territory. The familiar territory is carved out for us, really, in the, the opening chapters of the book. We have a vision of Jesus in the first chapter. We have uh, the church of Jesus brought to our attention in chapters 2 and 3. They're the recipients of the letter. The book of Revelation is, in fact, a letter to the church in every age and at every time in history. And you keep recapitulating some of those images, the things that are the beginning, and then you recapitulate descriptions of the end. And that's what we find happening here. We have a description of the end. And uh, at ground level, I said that there were the seven churches. The seven churches, this number seven stands for completeness or perfection. Those seven churches were real churches, but they actually stand in the Bible as symbolic of the entire church everywhere at all times throughout all of history. Then we found in chapters 4 and 5 a revelation of God on His throne. Jesus, the resurrected one, comes to before the throne of God and takes the book in which is written the story of humanity. Jesus unseals the book, and there are seven seals. And they end with the judgment. They end with the end of the human story here on earth, as it is. Then we had a vision of the church in its completeness glorified, that is, in heaven. All of the elect are gathered up, and they are in glory. And we heard and saw their prayers going up towards God, God mingling the fire of God with the prayers of the saints and pouring it out on the earth to accomplish His purposes. And that's followed by a series of seven trumpets that announce, if you will, some judgments that are falling even as we speak today that are trumpet judgments because those trumpet calls are alerting the world to its need to repent. And as we find ourselves at the end of a pandemic that has got our attention, and now moving into a place where the threat of nuclear war is getting our attention, as we think of inflation happening, as we think of the movement of goods and services that has been interrupted as we think of vast areas of the world now being denied wheat and other elements that come from that area, from the Ukraine and from Russia, and the threat of limitations and starvation are growing in our world. We're reminded of those trumpet judgments alerting the world to repentance. But now we come to the seven plagues. 
And they are, in the book of Revelation, very carefully described because with them the end comes. The end comes. These are not provisional judgments like the trumpets. These are not the ordinary give and take of the world with wars and rumors of wars. Jesus said that would happen right up until the end. Let me remind you of what Jesus said, by the way, to put everything that's happening right now in context in Matthew 24. Jesus said, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nations shall rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All this is but the beginning of the suffering. See, this book of Revelation is a letter to the church. In John's time, in Irenaeus' time, in Athanasius' time, in Augustine's time, in Aquinas' time, in Calvin's time, and in our time. And at every point in history, people are reading the book of Revelation, they're finding in this book things they recognize about the time in which they live. But this, this, these are the last plagues. The thing about this time that we're living in is that as well as the wars and rumors of wars, the gospel of the kingdom is being preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. We are seeing that happen in our time. The 2.5 billion Christians in the world are mostly to the south and the east of us. And then, said Jesus, the end will come. Revelation 15 signals that end. I saw another portent in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. And with them, the wrath of God is exhausted, ended, finished, completed. With each new insight of what is in heaven and what will happen on earth, we are given a heavenly scene, as I've noted before. Here, this heavenly scene takes us behind the scenes to where the saints are in glory. These plagues are distinguished from everything else that comes before as the last. With them is the completed manifestation of the wrath of God against sin. Of course, the wrath of God continues in hell, but these are the last physical displays of God's wrath against human and angelic sin in time. Those seals were opened by the Lord Jesus. The trumpets were blown by the archangels. The bowls of wrath are now outpoured by angels. Now, the choice of the word plagues here is very important to understand the passage. The seven plagues remind us of Egypt 
and the Israelite captivity there, and the seven plagues that preceded and precipitated the exodus from Egypt by Israel. We know that God throughout history is is judging the world by giving it over to the results of its own rebellion and folly. The, The Lord says to people, you want that? You can have that. But the consequences are are in your hands. That's the whole message of Romans chapter 1. God gave gave them over. He gives them over to do what what is in their heart to do. Sometimes He restrains what is in their heart to do. But but there are times God just lets people see the outworking of their will that is pitted against His will. That's part of the way He judges now. But these judgments, these plagues are the last. In chapter 11, we saw the church's witness to the nations, and we discovered that the prophetic task of the church throughout this age is to bear testimony to Jesus in all the nations. That's its job. You can't separate missions from regular preaching of the gospel here. That's what it's all about. In chapter 14, we saw there would be success in that mission, a great harvest of all of God's elect gathered together and brought home to God. Here in chapter 15, in verses 2 to 8, 2 to 4 rather, we find the church, the martyrs and the witnesses and the confessors of Christ, those who've experienced the new exodus, those who've triumphantly conquered in the battle with the beast, whether by resisting sin or avoiding compromise or enduring suffering, we find them in glory. We find them in glory. Now, let's look at the picture as it unfolds. First, John's attention and ours is drawn to what appeared to be a sea of glass, a sea in glory, a sea in glory. Now, using the word appeared there reminds you this is not a literal sea. None of this is literal, metaphorical. It's symbolic. But this sea of glass has two reference points. The first one is in the temple, in the tabernacle, where a kind of, uh, I don't know if you know what a Chinese walk looks like. It's kind of a this-shaped thing. And you cook in it. And... Uh, it's good for that. It was kind of an enlarged one of those things that you found in the holy place, in the, in the tabernacle and in the temple that was filled with water and was referred to as the laver or as a sea. That's where the priests washed themselves, cleansed themselves before they got about their business. But it, it had other connotations as well. It reminded Israel of the sea through which they'd literally come when they were rescued out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God, and God parted the sea in order to let them across to freedom and to salvation. And that, that picture of the sea then reminds us of a number of things. It reminds us of our baptism. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, 
And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. As we're going to see, it's the exodus that's in the mind of the Spirit here in in Revelation 15. The new exodus that Moses and Jesus, you remember, and Elijah talked about at the transfiguration when they talked about the exodus he was going to accomplish at Jerusalem. And we, we are priests. We are cleansed, as it were, signified by the waters of baptism. We were cleansed when we came to Jesus, when we became part of God's people. Because our job, we are priests to God. We don't have a priesthood separate. We are a holy priesthood. Therefore, we all together offer up our praises to God as holy priests in the temple of God, which is the church of the living God. The church's prophetic task then is to bear witness to Jesus to the ends of the earth. And as Jesus' people, we become part of that priestly choir who sing God's praises. In that quote from Paul that I gave you, Christians see their baptism as a washing and as a kind of passage through the Red Sea, sharing in Christ's death. He was overwhelmed by the waves on our behalf. We are buried with him in baptism, and we rise with him into newness of life. Now, in this case, John sees what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. One scholar puts it like this, the red glow on the sea spoke of the fire through which the martyrs passed, yet more so of the wrath about to fall on the world which had condemned them. But there's another biblical insight that we need to grasp here, and that is that in the Bible, the sea often represents cosmic evil. The wicked are like the troubled sea. There was in the Old Testament the idea of the sea monster, the dragon called Rahab, which was a, a picture of the devil and the devil's, the devil's powers in the world. And we find, for example, that God divides the, the, uh, cuts the dragon in two in order to let the children of Israel through the waters to the promised land. We read this, was it not you who cut Rahab to pieces and did pierce the dragon? Here, the depths of the sea is a way for the redeemed to pass over. Or in Psalm 74, tells the same story, you did not, did you not divide the sea with, you, with your strength? Did you not break the heads of the dragons on the water? This primordial sea is satanic, it's evil, it's troubled, it's the tumultuous nature of humankind. And yet here in the presence of God, it's a sea of glass, undisturbed. John Milton in his exquisite little poem, An Ode on the Morning of Christ's Nativity, puts one of the implications of Jesus' birth like this, that that mighty tumultuous sea had quite forgot to rave, while birds of calm 
sit brooding on the charmed wave. When Jesus comes into the world, that tumultuous sea is quietened by the arrival of the incarnate God. And G.B. Caird puts it like this, the proof of God's ultimate sovereignty is that he can use even the powers of evil as a means of their own destruction. Our baptism is a sign of our death. You can drown even with a few drops of water we use to baptize babies here. Do you know that? You can drown with a spoonful of water. So it's, it's dangerous. Baptism is dangerous. It's meant to signal that. Signals the potential of death, but now we go through it, as it were, as a sign of our salvation, of our separation and deliverance from the evil world system. In His grace, God conducts His people into His presence on the basis of that one man who endured a baptism of suffering in order that we might be brought to God. We have the sea in glory. Then secondly, we have the saints in glory. And I saw, he says also, those who had conquered the the beast and its image and the number of its name stand beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. The The Lamb has conquered so that we might conquerors be. And you see, it's the conquerors, not the conquest, but the conquerors that are in view here. Way back in chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation, God had promised a reward for those who conquer. The reward was sevenfold. To eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God, not to be hurt by the second death, to have a new name that only you will know, that to have power over the nations and the morning star as your gifts, You will not be blotted out. Your name will not be blotted out of the book of life, but will be confessed by Jesus to his Father. You will be made a pillar, that is a solid place, in the temple of my God. You'll never go out of it. You'll never be thrown out. I'll write the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, New Jerusalem, and my own new name. I'll write that on you. You belong to me. He who conquers... I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I have conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Those are among the rewards for faithfulness to Jesus. If you want a way to describe what discipleship is, that's Discipleship 101. Faithfulness to Jesus. And those who have been faithful have their harps on their hands. People used to joke about that. Certainly when I was young, about going to heaven and having harps, which we replaced guitars, of course, in my generation. But there you go. Andrew of Caesarea, writing round about 563, it's a long time ago now. Andrew of Caesarea puts it like this, the symbolism of the harps. He says, quote, The harmonious life in the symphony of virtues plucked with the plectrum of the Holy Spirit. Well, they're all set. 
They're all set to praise God. And so we read that, that they stand before the throne of God in heaven. Just like the Lamb stands in chapter 5. They appear in heaven and they stand along with Him. In chapter 5, the Lamb's standing is evidence that it is no longer dead but alive. These believers are standing because they are no longer dead. They are alive and resurrected. They stand with Him who is the first and the last and the living one and who died and behold, He's alive again and has the keys of death and Hades. He is the resurrection and the life. And He will raise up His people. Beloved, this is the good news we have for the world. This is the good news. We've been through a pandemic where the fear of death was instilled into us. We're now living in a period where the uncertainty, the nuclear issue has been raised by one of the great powers. And we can only foresee uncertainty now as we go into the future. We've gone from one hard place and we're potentially going to another hard place. And now of all times, the church of God is to proclaim this good Easter news that there is resurrection from the dead. And here we see the church, the saints in glory, resurrected. And then thirdly, we hear the song in glory. Listen to them, verse 3. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Here's the confirmation of our link with Exodus right throughout this passage. In Exodus chapter 15, we read this. Then they've just come out of the Red Sea. They're in dry ground. They're on the banks of the Red Sea. The enemy has been destroyed. Listen to them. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has cast into the sea. And just as Moses gathered his people there by the Red Sea, so the church gathers together in heaven by the sea that they saw in heaven to sing of God's salvation, to sing praises to the Lamb for defeating the beast on their behalf and to sing about God's attributes. You know, there are two songs of Moses, and they're, I think, blended. We find them blended together, always being placed together in the liturgies of Israel as well as the liturgies of the church, the early church, the ancient church. One comes from Deuteronomy 15. Here's an extract. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise Him, glorious in power, great in majesty. The other comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32. The rock, His work, is perfect, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and right is He. The song of Moses and the Lamb proclaim, God is holy and God is singular. God is gracious and God is loving. The song of Moses. Moses is described here as a servant of God. 
Well, aren't we all? But the Lamb is not a servant of God. Moses is called the servant of God to distinguish him from the Lamb. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The writer of the Hebrews in chapter 3, he distinguishes, contrasts Moses, the servant, from Jesus, who is a son. He is the natural son of God. And he is, in his divine nature, the living one who sits on God's throne, who has total sovereignty over the unfolding history of humanity, and who is the final judge before whom we must all appear. The Song of the Saints, sung in glory, is not only a song of Moses, that is, a song of triumph over all of God's enemies. It's a song of the Lamb that is the glorified, exalted Christ. It's a song of salvation. The one who has overcome the world, as he said. The one who says, I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. The Red Sea victory was an anticipation of the greatest victory of all time over death itself. With the resurrection of Jesus, the serpent is crushed. The beast is overcome. The grave is defeated. And the apostle Paul writes to Christians at the end of the book of Revelation, and he says, brothers and sisters, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Well, the song itself is almost entirely drawn from the Christian scripture we call the Old Testament. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. But I want you to notice what, the, what isn't in their song. In their song, there's no self-reflection. In their song, there's no looking back. No memories, no word about their earthly labors or their conflict or their suffering or their dying. In the presence of God, all that is behind them. All that has been kissed away by God who will wipe every tear from our eyes. God is now before them. There he is in his splendor and his glory before them. And in the presence of God, absorbed with him, with the wonders of what it means to be in glory, as uh, Peter and J James and John viewed it as spectators, Moses and Elijah with Jesus in Jesus' glory, so now they are participants in that glory, and we shall be participants in that glory. And we will have the beatific vision, able to look into the very essence of God by the grace of God. We'll see him face to face. And in seeing him, we will see everything the way he sees it. We will see all things in relation to him. 
See, that's part of our struggle, isn't it? Maybe you've been having nightmares about what's going on in Ukraine. We have no answers. It is an unjust war on the part of Russia, and it's a just war on the part of those who are defending themselves. But it raises so many questions. On that day when we see from God's perspective things that don't make sense now will make sense then. And here's what they go on to say. Just and true are your ways. Moses had sung, God's works are true and all his ways are just. God has demonstrated, you see, his commitment to justice. First in relation to us. He found a way of being just, remaining just, and being the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. But justice doesn't end with our salvation and our justification. There are things in the world that need the justice of God to address, and they will be finally addressed. Thus God is the king of the ages. If you look at your footnote in the ESV, you'll see that that's the alternative reading. Scholars think that would be the original reading and that some uh, monk somewhere brought the nations of verse 4 up to the last last line of verse 3 there. They'd be far more likely to change ages into nations than they would be nations into ages. And that would bring us right round from talking about the everlasting gospel, the gospel that is from the ages, to the king who is from the ages, the eternal gospel and the eternal king. Now, what is it saying to us? What are they singing this song? God does all things well. He does all things well. The link with the Exodus has a particular pertinence to us today because what launched the Exodus was not just the plagues of Egypt. It was the slaughter of the lamb and the daubing of the lamb's blood on the doorposts and the lintels of the Israelites' home to teach them a very graphic lesson that when the Lamb of God came, who's a person, his blood would trigger the redemption of the world. Paul says, Christ Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. That's what we celebrate at the Lord's table. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. 
And so with that in our minds, come, let us keep the feast. Lord God, will you draw near to us now as we come to this table and as you put all of your promises, all of your purposes into these elements which you will place into our hands, into our mouths, so that we not only hear with our ears but see with our eyes and touch with our senses the wonderful thing that you have done with Christ, in Christ, in Calvary, and that by the Holy Spirit you apply to us through this visible signs of that invisible grace that is ours in him. We pray in his strong name. Amen.